Bride Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Bede. And this is a podcast where I try and broaden Dad's artistic horizons to develop a liking for some contemporary art. How do you think it's going so far, Dad? We're nearing the end of the year. I think it's been great fun. It's been one of the highlights of, of the year for me, actually. Really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Glowing, glowing review. Well, if you also would like to give us a glowing review, we would love it if you could please uh, subscribe, rate, and if possible, write a review for our podcast because it helps other people to find us. And as always, you can find images of the works we're discussing this week in the episode description. Today, Dash, we're not looking so much at the future, even though we're about to enter 2023, so much as the past. I know that you're, you really like the work The Swing by Jean-Honoré Fragonard. Yes, it's, uh, I, I love the sort of, what's the word, the luxury and the decadence of the 18th century and life seemed to be a lot of fun then as long as you were born into the right social class, I guess. And it's a, it's a very romantic picture I've always thought with the girl swinging in the swing and the shoe flying off. Although one part of the picture that really intrigues me is, is she sort of got very poppy almost hysterical eyes which I've never quite understood but um yeah I, I do I do like Fragonard and and that period of art mm, yeah so the Rococo period which we'll we'll get to explaining that period a bit more but I just want to touch on I mean you say this image is romantic I mean obviously you're referring to romantic love not the romantic period of art but it's I mean it's actually for the time it had like sexual undertones this painting yes I mean I guess the um gentleman who is facing the lady on the swing is sort of positioned in a way where he can really observe her and um I suppose it reflected the mores or lack thereof of 18th century French court life wouldn't you say yes I mean it definitely reflects some um, the frivolity of the court and definitely you know one thinks of how the upper classes would have been viewed in the eyes of the lower classes at this time especially I mean they the upper classes reveled in this luxury but you can imagine how disgusting it would have seemed to the poor people of the time. Yes, I, I mean, there have been, you know, movies that have, have exemplified that terrible um, uh, wealth distribution or absence of wealth distribution, the unfair distribution of wealth, and the fact that people were going living as, as though there was no tomorrow, and the aristocrats mm. didn't in fact know that there was no tomorrow. I, I remember another painting by Fragonard were people who are departing a island and there's a sort of although it's that they're dressed in this very fine and lacy and pastel colored way there's a sort of I don't know if this was intentional on his part air of a slight air of menace over it as though they were leaving the the era altogether which of, of course they were Mm. I remember um, also uh, uh, one of the movies that makes that point very strikingly is Les Adieux de la Reine, which focuses on a lady-in-waiting in, in the court of Louis XVI who is doing embroidery for Marie Antoinette. And, you know, one of the scenes, there's all this hustle and bustle in the corridors of the palace and 
one of the people says, now you'll come to my party on the 15th of July, won't you? Another one says, oh, yes, certainly. I don't have anything on then. And of course, we, from our perspective, know that on the 14th of July, there's going to be a complete overturning of the of the old order. Mm, and I think that's actually a very appropriate reference to make because, of course, she's doing this embroidery and everyone's fussing over, you know, is it done yet? How's it going? Um, this obsession with, you know, a luxury item, an item of beauty that requires so much free time to produce in the midst of the social upheaval really shows how focused they were on ideas of beauty. But I, before we move on, I do want to ask, I mean, you say you like the swing, but this sort of style of, I guess, you know, it's been accused of being frivolous. And when you look at it, it's very sort of fluffy looking. It almost looks like it could bubble off the page like a cloud and start floating through the sky you know it's it's light it's pastel it's very lovely is the easiest way to describe it but I mean how do you square this with your love of enlightenment philosophers well I thought the enlightenment philosophers as far as I know were keen on the idea of individual autonomy and and rebelled against the old clerical oppression and would have therefore favored the right of young ladies and gentlemen to disport themselves on swing parks if they wanted to. <laughs> um, okay, an interesting, maybe there's a journal article in there for you somewhere. Yes. <laughs> um, so we mentioned that this painting comes from the Rococo and the Rococo is a movement that evolved out of the Baroque and the Baroque is characterised by this very sort of dramatic and powerful paintings. So you think of artists like Caravaggio or Rembrandt, you know, there's a lot of use of light and dark and shadow and contrast. And it has these very Catholic overtones because it was sort of the drama was meant to bring people back to the true, the so-called true faith of Catholicism rather than allowing them to fall into the hands of Protestantism. But then the Rococo flowed out of that in the latter half of the 18th century and it's also very opulent but it's often described as being softer and more feminine it's it's not so dramatic I guess there's the contrast in color and line and shadow is not so high it's more characterized by I mean it's kind of like comparing a big powerful strong looking solid sideboard and a fluffy little overdone doily that sits on top of it I guess is one way to think about the contrast. So I mean I I hadn't really appreciated that difference between Baroque and Rococo before I mean would you, would you say that Baroque is heavier the architecture and the pictures? Yes I mean it's still you still have a lot of ornamentation but it has more of a serious vibe I mean it it I think that a good way to sort of imagine the difference is to keep in mind what I said before that, you know, Baroque has these sort of Catholic overtones, but Rococo is very vivid and it's more secular. So it sort of had this intense detail without having the heaviness or the restriction or the, the mores of the church sitting behind it. So it was kind of liberated from that and it was more playful. So would the Enlightenment philosophers not have surely reveled in the Rococo then? Well, I don't think of Immanuel Kant as um a person who would frolic 
<laughs> in the woods. I mean, you know, there's that portrait of him where he's sort of in a, a three-quarter profile and just from his austere demeanour, I'm not sure he would have been kicking his shoes off in the woods. Yes, he did look a rather grim fellow, I must admit. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, I think another, I, I say that, but I think that the Rococo, and one of the reasons why it's having a bit of a moment in contemporary art now, is that it seems to us to mirror the sort of saturation and ostentatiousness of our times. You know, there's a sense of excess and glamour and everything's overdone. And I think that's something that resonates for us, especially when we're so constantly saturated with imagery because of the online world that we live in. But that's not to say that the Rococo is shallow. It's often criticised for being that way, I think, especially because of the comparisons that can be made with the Baroque that came before, which had this drama and religious associations, and then Romanticism, which came after, which also was quite heavy and overtly philosophical. But, you know, it did have a massive impact on the visual world. It grew out of interior design and interior decoration. And that and its association with a lot of female patrons has led to this sort of gendered criticism of it as being shallow because women were associated with being shallow and this interior world of the home was associated with women. So I think it's important to recognise that it's it has a lot of cultural baggage. Sure. And is there, I mean, how is the Rococo viewed nowadays? Well, in terms of what we're going to be talking about today, maybe let's turn to the artwork that we're talking about. So we're going to be looking at Flora Yuknovich, who's a British artist born in 1990. Uh, she has an MA in Fine Art from the City and Guilds of London Art School, and she lives and works in London. And she has been producing, and I think it's, you know, she's one of my favourite contemporary artists, this stunning body of work, which builds on ideas from the Rococo, but, you know, makes them contemporary and brings them into our world. And I think that her work is a good way to sort of see the different ways in which the Rococo is being reflected in our contemporary world. So I've sent you an image of one of her works called Creme de la Mer from 2022. So would you oh, like yes. to have a look at the work and describe for the listeners what you see? Right. So it's a uh almost square painting I'd say and it it doesn't actually depict any objects rather it's you almost say although it would be wrong to say this an impressionistic painting but it doesn't use the same brush strokes as impressionists at all so perhaps I shouldn't have said that um, but it, it has the daubs of color almost as you might imagine would be on an artist's palette and the color structure though it's it's not random because you've got the browner and greener hues at the bottom then you've got a pink object which is three quarters or two-thirds way up to the right and then a very cloudy light blue top of the painting and it clearly resonates with the swing because the distribution of colors even though you're not looking at an object or objects or people um, mirrors very closely what they are in the swing so it's it's funny, it's sort of immediately recognisable in, in the subconscious, even though it doesn't actually depict anything particular. You can see how Flora's playing with this Rococo aesthetic in her paintings, but 
as you say, she blurs it. She makes it far less finely defined, but it's still, yeah, I mean, it's almost like you're looking at the swing without glasses, um, <laughs> you know, things blurring to each other, but you still have conveyed to you the sense of excessive detail and decoration that's so characteristic of Rococo painting, but without showing it so clearly. And in that way, even though, you know, you look at the swing by Fragonard and, you know, it's so detailed and lush, you still have that same sense in this painting because everything still does have that feeling of a sort of fluffy look to the eyes. And I think the way that she layers the colours and transitions from light to dark in the painting gives that same sense of diving into this little corner of the world that's so densely packed. Yes, and although the painting is, you know, as you've accurately portrayed what someone who's extremely short-sighted might see if they were looking at the swing all the the lovely colors are still there and you know although again the sort of runs count I don't know whether you'll count this as a very early victory but I, I actually like it because the colors are still beautiful there's that lovely pastel shading and it raises in my mind a question as to why do I like this and yet don't like the blurry, fuzzy pictures of one of my bet noir, um, Turner, who, you know, I've railed against before and who paints these um, sunsets and ships, but they're all fuzzy and broken. And could it be that Turner is trying to paint, a, you know, the reaction I have to Turner is, He's trying to paint a ship, but he's too lazy to do the detail. And so he's just giving you the idea of a ship. Whereas Yuknovich isn't trying to do that. She is just saying, this is a beautiful depiction of colors. Yes, it evokes the swing, but I'm not reproducing the swing. So it's it's um, it's more honest in that way. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, something that, I mean, obviously I, I've studied art history and so much of the time we get trapped in these very academic <laughs> cycles of discussion. And I say trapped because you do lose sight of, often in discussion, immediate reaction and immediate, immediate feelings of liking something and why you might like something more than another. I mean, I think, and I think how you've described the difference there is very interesting. I mean, maybe, maybe for one, it's because you yourself wear glasses and so... <laughs> Yes, but I mean, my level of sight impairment is by no means so great as to lead me to see this when I look at the swing. Let me hasten to add, I'm not that decrepit. <laughs> um, I mean, I think for one thing, maybe, you know, as someone who, even though you have your issues with contemporary art you're someone who has an appreciation of art history and history generally and I think that Flora Yuknovich's work does have a sense of deja vu you know the images are familiar but there's something that you can't quite put your finger on it it gives your imagination a space to wander and reconstruct or not reconstruct historical works as you wish I mean, it's similar in that way, actually, in a slightly different way to how the swing lets you fill in the narrative gaps. You know, what are these people doing in the woods? What's going to happen next between these people? 
but it gives you a bit more space. So she sort of opens up the field of imagination that little bit more. It's also interesting to think that, I mean, Turner was obviously very interested in painting experience. I mean, you know, there's that story of him lashing himself to a ship's mast during a storm to see what it was really like to be able to convey that in his painting. It's a pity there wasn't any lightning, but anyway, carry on. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm thinking along the lines of maybe one of the reasons also why you like this in particular is that there is this sense of direct deja vu in relation to another painting that you've seen. I mean, do you think that you would still like this painting if you didn't like the swing? I agree definitely with the deja vu, but I still think I'd like it because I like the softness of the colours and the interplay between them. Um, and also, you know, even though we, we know it is, isn't a, a landscape or a, a depiction of a park, the way in which the cloud towards the top has been depicted draws one in. It's got a real sense of perspective. Another thing that it reminded me of, and I mean, I, I'm not at all familiar with the different architectural and interior design masterworks of the Rococo period, but it does remind me somehow of a interior of a dome, a cupola, if that's mm -hmm. the right pronunciation, of, of some um, Rococo church with mm -hmm. the sky at, at the top. And I I can't, I can't name it, but I know I've seen it. So that's another interesting evocation. Yes. And it does, you know, we should say also that the Rococo, you know, I mentioned that it came, it flowed sort of from interior decoration, but it, the, the term also comes from the word rocai, which was a mode of decorating grottos, you know, in, in these elaborate gardens that they had using pebbles and shells and things like that. So it does have an architectural resonance as well. And as you say, with the perspective, especially with the light in the sort of top third or so of the painting, it does evoke that sense of perspective. And so I think that the sense of deja vu is not just towards the swing or any particular painting, but also to these different forms that we encounter in our lives. I was also thinking that maybe, you know, I will take, as you say, this early win, maybe another reason why you like this work is I mean you have a general I guess affinity with this well not affinity with but an interest in this the in the latter half of the 18th century I mean it was a period of revolution but also a period where for example Mozart lived and you really like him I mean his his works also many of them had this sense of opulence and being densely packed oh yes and it, it reminds me of that scene in the Amadeus movie where the um, emperor is has listened to one of his works and all the courtiers are trying to give the emperor a reason not to allow him to write an opera. And they say, perhaps his work got too many notes, sire. And he says, yes, too many notes. Um, in a sense, you, you can understand why some people would think that the Rococo is overdone. There's just so much fluffiness, so many colours, so many little fat cherubs hanging around in the corners that you think, well, this artist has certainly gone above and beyond in in this depiction of almost a, a fantasy world. Mm. And I think, you know, that sort of fills out the circle of how the Rococo did encapsulate 
the time that it sprang from. It was sort of the height of contemporary for that time in terms of reflecting the world that it sprang from when you think of the court of uh, Louis XVI. That opulence was there and it was all encompassing, if not just in the court and the objects it was filled with, but the people who were such, I mean, they were the influences of their time. You think of Marie Antoinette or Madame Pompadour or indeed Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who was a, a woman artist at the time. You know, these figures loomed large and it was a time of all-encompassing experience. And a sort of freedom not to be serious, mm. uh, which is what comes through um, very much. And again, I suppose that's the that's the the courtly life. Um, everything is to do with the superficialities. Nothing is to do with um, much that is serious. And and to go back to the movies again, there was a film whose name escapes me, but about a minor aristocrat going to court to try to get a grant to have the swamps drained in his area of the country because he wanted to do something good for the people and he had to plow through you know through society in order to try to have the opportunity um which he, he doesn't eventually get to plead his case because no one's really interested in something as serious as as draining swamps they're just interested in maintaining their social position yes yeah, so that movie's um ridicule and oh yes he does completely also visually transform himself into the perfect courtier. So it does show how immersed we become in the world that we live in also shows, well, it changes how we curate ourselves and present ourselves, which leads me to, to get back to the question that you asked. Perhaps not so much the question of how we think of the Rococo today, but the similarities between today and the Rococo and the society that gave birth to the Rococo. I mean, today we also live in a time of excess and where I think, you know, we face a lot of challenges as a society, but there are a lot of people who are not interested in being serious. And I think that because we face so many, you know, very um, existential crises as humanity, it is also important to have opportunities to be silly or see something pretty yes and i mean as you know i am fastidious in curating my image so um perhaps um perhaps i'm not so much as you once called me a renaissance man as a rococo man <laughs> maybe um <laughs> i think though you're also um a man of our times now i mean you've seen mean girls with me i think many times oh yes yeah. And so an interesting thing about Flora Yukonovich's art is that she has these pop culture references in her art as well. So, for example, one of the titles of her work is Le Mercredi on s'habille en rose. So on Wednesdays, we wear pink, which, as you know, is a line from Mean Girls. Um, but another of her paintings is called Imagination, Life is Your Creation. And do you remember what that's a quote from? It's not a film. Oh, yeah, that, that's from um, uh, Barbie Girl, which is by the, I think, Danish group Aqua. 
Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. And both of those quotes, you know, they're tongue in cheek, but especially that imagination, life is your creation, but also the idea of we as a group have this way of dressing, you know, on Wednesdays we wear pink, also reflects this practice of self-making and living creatively and living in creation. Yeah, I suppose it's, um, you know, in the, in the era of influences, it's, it's how you create the image that's all important. And that's sort of spot on with how things were um, at the French court at, at Versailles. What you wore could damn you to social isolation if it wasn't the colour or the style that was in favour at that time. Yeah, and so with the titles books, you also often ask me about, you know, the relevance or not of titles. I thought you'd be interested to know that Flora Yuknovich has said in an interview with Art UK that the titles usually come after she's made the paintings, um, but she sort of noted that titles can give the paintings a more humorous reading or add these other tidbits of meaning like we've just talked about. I think it also shows how we can forget that many of these works from the art historical canon, like The Swing, are now treated with such reverence, but we forget that many of them were meant to be funny or have these funny little narrative meanings. I mean, they were contemporary for the people then, and people then had the same appetite for humour as we have now. Yeah, so they'd probably be surprised that we cluster around the swing and engage in art criticism of us, and they would just say, well, you know, it's our, it was our equivalent of a cartoon. Mm, yeah, it's, you know, we forget that, I think because these paintings are worth so much now, and that's not to say that they were cheap to commission then, but you think about the people who were commissioning these pieces and the luxury of, say, Versailles, although they were symbols of social status, you know, they were still just part of the decoration of their homes, something nice and funny to look at. And, of course, they served a whole lot of other purposes to do with social status and um, politics, but they were also still something to look at. Yes, and I, you know, if one sees documentaries about some of the great houses of that era, I'm always struck by the sheer volume of art, I don't know if one uses measures art by volume, or perhaps area of paintings that covered the walls. There were paintings everywhere. You could hardly focus um, on them individually because it was all just presented in one great burst covering every single surface. Yeah, it really was all-encompassing. Um, as a final point, I guess I'd also like to talk about the colour pink which, you know, you mentioned the lovely colours in these paintings that you like. Yes, and that's very striking and um, it's sort of got an air of tranquility about it. Do you know much about the history of the colour pink? No, I would assume that its origins stem back as far as any other colour. <laughs> or it's a shade, really, isn't it? Because it's a mixture of red and white. Yes, yeah, so it's quite right. And actually, the Italian painter... Cennino Cennini described the shade, which we now call pink, as a blend between Venetian red and St. John's white, and he liked using it to provide the sort of glowing undertones of religious figures and poised gentry. Um, but it was really popularised in the 18th century in both fashion and, and interior design. And, you know, you say that it, one would think that its roots go back as far as any other colour, but 
when you think about it, it's a colour that really rarely appears in nature. What about roses? Well, don't they come from Kazakhstan? I mean, I'm sure maybe people in Kazakhstan had a name for them, but I'm, if you think about England in the Middle Ages, what would you oh, right. just pink? No, I, I guess there wasn't anything really that, that was pink then at all. One sort of forgets, again, when we're so swamped by imagery that some of these things weren't as common. I mean, the same with um these beautiful deep blues I mean of course you could see that in the sky or in the sea um but that really rich blue of the lapis lazuli you know you didn't necessarily see that much every day if you're a peasant working in the fields pink as a color only entered language as a noun at the end of the 17th century at least in English and actually in the 18th century proto-psychologists recommended it as a bedroom color for business-minded gentlemen because it would provide a restorative and uplifting home base. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you've got psychologists wading in, I suppose, yes, you know, the palette does, palette of colours, rather, does take on a whole new meaning. Yeah, you and mum used to have a, you know, you've done that sort of sponge effect. with. Oh, pink. yeah, mummy did a feature wall with pink paint on a little sponge, and it was really, really nice. You know, since you should be so business-minded now, after that, I'm I'm looking forward to my inheritance. <laughs> but we now also, you know, to bring it back to the contemporary, have this colour shade, millennial pink. Do you have you heard of millennial pink? No. Well, you are a baby boomer, so maybe that's not surprising. Um, but it's been popularised as a gender-neutral colour, sort of has the sense of sublime, but you sort of, you know, if you were as much of a, <laughs> a consumer of consumer products as I am, you would see it everywhere. You know, so it, it's interesting as well, that gender discussion. You know, we see millennial pink as a gender-neutral colour, so very popular and for all genders for clothing and things like that but I mean would you say growing up dad would you have thought of pink as a, a girl's color I'm sure oh yeah very definitely but I mean I've I've broadened my thinking and as you know I, I have a number of pink shirts so yeah I'm certainly one who moves with the times don't you think <laughs> you definitely are but actually the reason why I brought it up was um because I, I know that you're a fan of pink for your clothes now but in the past it was actually a masculine color because red was associated with fire and strength and masculinity, whereas blue was connected to the Madonna and therefore femininity. Oh, I didn't know that. But actually, I said that the last point was the last point, but one more point. As we talked about earlier, the Rococo was very well known for erotic depictions of the female body. But here, you know, you see the female forms are abstracted, which would seem to make them not so objectified. What do you make of that? Um, you mean in 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 the modern Rococo mm. uh, works? I suppose what in particular Flora Yukovich's work is doing is getting us not to focus on the girl in the swing as just getting us to focus on the colours of the painting. And in that sense, it, it is abstracted away from the overtones of of life and 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 politics and gender relations in the 18th century. Mm. When we think of erotic depictions of anybody's body, one obviously has tactile associations with that, but it's sort of, she still presents something that's very tactile because her brush strokes are so gestural. You know, you can really see how she's moved 
And because it is abstracted, you still have this suggestive sense when you look at the painting. I mean, maybe it says something about people that we're so willing to have a sense of deja vu and read clear images into something abstracted. Yes, and I mean, this brings back again that theme that we've been talking about. A person who hadn't actually seen the swing, would they have that same reaction? I, I don't think so. It, it really depends on that play in the mind. And to me, this is what makes that work so fascinating. I feel like I shouldn't bother asking you, do you like this work then? Since you... Oh, you definitely do. Oh, good. Well, another win to put on the scoreboard. Well, on that happy note, it's nearly 2023. So I was wondering if you have any advice for people about how they can spend their New Year's Eve. I suppose a lot of it depends on taking opportunities to keep yourself entertained. And I must admit, I'm one of these people who doesn't really like sitting, waiting for the clock to tick round to 12 o'clock. I mean, I, yeah, sure, you know, you like to have a glass of champagne and things like that, but I sometimes find it incredibly tedious waiting. And on one particular occasion, uh, probably 30 years ago now, we were sitting around, uh, Mummy and I, in our, my in-law's house, waiting for New Year to happen. Now, I think I've mentioned before that we lived in Natal in South Africa, which has a subtropical climate and is very prone to insect life of all kinds. And it's a sort of perennial problem that everyone battles with. So this isn't a comment on anyone's particular household. I must preface my comments with that. But anyway, I was bored out of my mind. It was probably 10.45 and there were people talking and I wasn't really part of the conversation. And out of the corner of my eye, down a corridor leading off from the lounge, I saw a cockroach running along. And I thought, you know, here's my opportunity to do something and to be public spirited. So I discreetly excused myself, went and got a can of cockroach spray and gave this cockroach a real blast. But I didn't realize, first of all, that there was a breeze coming down the corridor, which carried both the sound and the smell of the cockroach spray. And unfortunately, one of the guests there just couldn't help observing what I was doing. And I hadn't really wanted to be observed. And he said, oh, beads celebrating early. And that focused everyone's attention on what I'd done. And, you know, I was seen to have disrupted the evening by drawing attention to the cockroach. And so that, that new year didn't go down too well. So I guess my advice perhaps for the new year is to be discreet in whatever you're doing. Oh, well, that's, um, yeah, really brings it a nice full circle back to people frolicking in little grottos in the woods out of the public eye. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for that piece of advice. I'll make sure to have a can of doom, as you call it, the insect spray, with me, just in case things get boring on New Year's. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us for this last episode of 2022. We're looking forward to being back here for you in 2023, in the new year. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Have a great new year. Bye.